Thank you very much. I find it that the Rav must do a, a great deal of exercise here because after the amount of food that the Revitzin has provided over the Shabbos, if I continued on that diet, I would um, need an, an entire new wardrobe. <laughs> yes. Vashem HaKadosh, Chassidim say that telling a story about the Vashem HaKadosh on Matzah Shabbos is a school for Parnosa. My uncle, Reb Shia, Abraham J. Twersky, Zechariah I believe is this, this coming week, said that, Chassidim used to say that that statement is true with, with three exceptions. It's not just a story about the Bolshem Tov, it's a story about any tzaddik. It's not just about the Shabbos, it's true any time. And it's not just a school for Parnos, it's a school for all good things. So the statement is true just with those three minor exceptions. <laughs> there was a minute to tell stories on Matzah Shabbos. The truth is that in my mother, my father's mother's family in Sanz and in Baba, they did not have a public Malava Malka. I'm not even sure if they washed from Malava Malka, actually. But just to give you a glimpse into the mind of a great person, during the, uh, during the war, when the Bavarov was running from the Nazis, so he came to a place in Budapest, owned by the Lefkowitz family. I heard, actually, I heard these stories, I heard them from the Bavarov originally, then I, I was in the Catskills once, and I met a Yid, Shia Lefkowitz. And he shared with me the other side of the story, because it was in it was in their home. Bobrov came there from Poland, from Galicia, and shared with them what was going on. Nazis were slaughtering, murdering, and destroying. And the Hungarian Jews didn't believe him. And he got up and spoke in Shul and related what was going on there. And they didn't believe him. There were Yechidim, individuals who uh, acknowledged and believed what he said, and many of them ran from, from there to Hungary and, and escaped from there and were always Maketev to him for saving their lives. But he came to this Lefkowitz family and he convinced them to build an underground bunker in their, in their home which they did. And then he told them that he wanted to do a practice run. And they went into this underground bunker with the, with, it was a large number of people. And while they were down there, the Nazis came into the house and they spent six months together underground in this, in this bunker. There were times, he said, Shia Lefkowitz told me, he dazzled us. The entire time we were there with stories, with Divrei Torah, he kept us alive. At one point, they, at night, they would open the hatch to get oxygen in, but they, they heard people walking around upstairs and they couldn't do it. 
They couldn't open the hatch. He said there was so little oxygen that the candles went out. And it was pikuach nefesh. People took upon themselves all kinds of uh, promises that, that you know, if they get out, you know, I'll finish Shas daily or something. You know, just commitments that were impossible for them to fulfill. And the Bavrov said there were two instances that this happened. One time, and he shared with the Lefkowitzes and the others who were there that when he gets out, Hashem, that even though it wasn't the minute that he would fear Malava Malka with in, in public with the Oilam. Okay? Shilafkut says to me, I looked at the man like he was mad. What Oilam? The world was over, it was gone, there was nobody left. Who were you fearing Malava Malka with? That was his that was his, his, his perspective. He survived, he rebuilt. And I heard from him countless, countless stories of those Malava Malkas. But I'm gonna share with you tonight not a single one that I heard from him. Okay, none of these are stories that I heard from him. But I wanna, I wanna build a little bit. I wanna build on stories of greatness, of human greatness, and then build towards the power that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives tzaddikim and their capacity of tzaddik goes of HaKadosh Baruch Hu that the tzaddik has the ability to decree and Hashem will fulfill the words. First one is a story about my, my great-grandfather, the Kiddush from Babu, who at uh, one day announced that he was leaving Babav and moving to Chibin. You ever heard this? Left Babav for five years. He gave no reason. Picked up with uh, two Gaboyim. And we know that the Chibin Rov was one of the Gedali Yisrael. He survived, <coughs> survived the war. And was viewed by many as the Paisagatar. He was an, an incredible man. And here, Achsidish Rebbe comes in and moves in in the town. You know, it, it could have created some friction. And my, my great grandfather said to him, No matter what, there'll be Chasanas, Bris, and no matter, I, I am not going to take a single kid with your rov in town. I promise you there will be no friction between us. And from the minute he stepped into Chabin, even at his own children's Bris and, and weddings, he did not, he, the, my great-grandfather did not take any official role, didn't play any role. In one instance, the Chibinarov married off a child and invited my great-grandfather, the Gedishasian, to attend Sheva Brochus in his home. At the Sheva Brochus, my great-grandfather turns to his Gabai and says to him, do me a favor and go by some mashke. Go buy some whiskey and honor the simcha. So the Chabina Rav says, Bob of the Rav, we have plenty of mashke. Why are you sending somebody to buy mashke? To which he responded, Taisvi says that the guest is supposed to provide the mashke. Chabina Rav 
new color to the cooler. He put his head in his hand, leafed through all of Shas, and this is in public, said there is no such Taisvis in Shas. You got to be able to do that. <laughs> the, uh, check the hard drive. And my elders said, go, said to the guy, go pick up, go pick up the mashkin. <clears throat> the guy returns with the mashkin, and, and the came and the shevet broke. I said, there was never another word mentioned between the two of them about this episode. Hitler comes, murders my great grandfather, Chabinarov, survives the war. He's sitting with his talmidim in the Chabini yeshiva in Yerushalayim, giving shear. And he comes across the Taisus. And the Chabinarov bursts into tears in front of the Talmidim. That we could figure out this is not world's most emotional Taisus. <laughs> What's he crying about? He closes the Gemara, tells the Talmidim to close the Gemara, and says, What I'm going to teach you today is more important than anything you would ever learn. And tells them the story and says to them, he had every right to defend himself. I was the one who made a statement in front of the entire world that there is no such Taisus in Shas. He had every right to defend himself, and he didn't do so, lest he would cause me embarrassment. So he says to Talmidim, it's an incredible lesson in self-constraint. Knew what the Taisus was, knew what Taisus said, I, I was the one who denied it, and yet he did not come to his defense. That's story number one. No miracles involved, right? <laughs> this is human nature. <clears throat> I knew I shouldn't have swallowed that sandpaper. <laughs> <laughs> Second story involves Ramatullah Hanastaipu. Ramatullah had a, this interesting, very interesting fusion of being both a Paisik in Ukraine and he was a Rebbe. A Rebbe of Balmaifis. He was, uh, uh, you know, this farm from him both in Halacha and Niglin and Nister. He was a, a, a towering figure. His name was Ramat Chadoiv Bear Tursky. It was a fake Tursky, though, because we're, we're frauds. His, Ramatullah's mother, Ramatullah's father was married to Rabbi Wissel Tursky's daughter of Cherkas. And his wife, Ahmad al passed away at a young age. And he was raised by his grandfather, Tversky, so he took on the name Tversky. Real name is Auerbach. I will not respond to Auerbach. <laughs> <clears throat> Anyhow, my grandfather, my father's father, traveled throughout on his way, as he was leaving Europe before the war, visited various cities, <clears throat> and came to a town identifying as 
with the last name Tureskian, and came to the home of a Sheikhit who learned of the fact that he was Ramatullah's grandson. So this Sheikhit was an elderly man, and he said to his grandson, bring me a cup of water. <coughs> Fill it to the very, very top. So this angle abides and brings in this glass, and the Sheikhit extends his arm like this, with the glass full to the very, very top. And he says to my grandfather, is my hand shaking? Not a drop of water was lost from the glass. My grandfather said, no. So he said, and despite that, I have not shechted in decades. I refuse to shecht. So my grandfather said, okay. He said, it's your Zed is doing. So what happened? So he says, we lived in a, a shtetl of decent size, and where there were two sheikhtim in town. You have to remember that in, in that era, it even happened here in the United States, people didn't go to the butcher shop, to the kosher market, and buy their, buy their flesh. You bought an animal, and you took the animal to the sheikhit. The sheikhit checked it, checked it for you, and you took it home and you salted it yourself, and, and you process, you had to flick it, and, and if it was a chicken, you had to, there, was, there was a process. The, uh, it didn't come in frozen packages coming from Iowa. So we, he says, the sheikh, the other sheikh in the town, and I switched off days. So says, one night, went to sleep and I had a dream. Ayid came to me in this dream and said to me, whatever his name was, or so-and-so. I want you to understand that tomorrow a cow, an animal, is going to come to you to be shechted. I plead with you to be very careful with the shechita and with the bedika to make sure that it turns out to be kosher. Because my neshama is megogel in that animal. And the aliyah of my neshama is going to be dependent upon eating, eating of that meat and saying brachas. And if they can't eat it because the shechita wasn't good, I'm lost, I'm doomed. He said, and I'll give you a simon. You'll see that the spotting on the face of this animal is he described exactly what it's going to look like. And you'll know that that's me. He was dreading the next day. Dismissed it. It was just a dream, but how serious can the dream be? The next morning, there's a knock at the door. And there's a yid standing there that someone is calling him to the shlachtais. And he's dreading going, and he goes in, and it's the exact same animal that was described to him in the dream. And he didn't want the achrayis. So he went to the other sheikhet. The other sheikhet was laying in bed with fever. And he said to him, get out of bed. There's an animal that needs to be shechted. The guy said to him, well, there's two problems. Number one, it's your day to shech. Number two, I'm sick. He said, get out of bed. Drags him forcefully out of bed and takes him to the shlachtos and says, shech that animal. Sheikh takes the chalif, 
approaches the animal and it goes nuts, thrashing and throwing itself. There was nothing he could do to hold the animal down. The shaykh who had the dream said, give me the knife. He walks over and the animal lays down. Calm. He says, take the knife from me and shaykh. The animal went nuts again. He realized that he had no option and that the dream was a valid dream. He carefully shechts the animal. His baidik the lungs and there's a serious shayla on the lungs that he would have otherwise deemed as being a trefa. But he knew. He knew the achrayis that was upon him in this situation. So he took the animal and the lungs, the whole thing, packed it onto a wagon, and he traveled to Arnestaibu. Comes into Ramatullah and begins the story from the very beginning and says to me, I need a Yeshua. This man told me his, his, his entire Ganadin, his future, is, is, is dependent upon the Shrita being kosher. And I have, look at these lungs. Ramat looks at the inflates. <coughs> Inflates the lungs. Asher Matla says, I'll leave it here till morning and come back in the morning. Rebbe he said, related to him, to the Shaykhet, the Rebbe son said, the Rebbe was up the entire night. The next morning, he kashed the meat and gave it to the Babiratsa to cook and said to her, I'm inviting ten Talmidah Chachamim to come eat. I was. I found the heter for the flesh and he invited ten tamidi chachamim to come partake of this meat. So he said to my grandfather, that was the last time I shechted. I'll never shecht again. I, what I gleaned from the story was that when you sit down to eat something, you got to really think about the brachas that you're saying, because you really have no idea whose whatever sparks of kedusha may be in that food, and what is dependent upon it. Rabbi Yosef Shol Natanzon Lembergerov writes in Askama. Safer to have a picture of the of the page in my mind. He writes that he heard Hashem the Balsham Kodesh. He wasn't. He didn't live. He lived uh, whatever 50, 60 years after the Balsham Spatira. That there was a ma'aseh like this, and that a person oftentimes finds themselves in a rather distant, strange place. You can end up in Cincinnati, and. It's because there's a bracha that you need to recite. Or Milwaukee. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that you need to recite over something that's shayach to your neshama, that only you can be misakin. And Rabbi Yosef Shol says that ever since then, he's makman no matter where he goes to stop and eat something in that local place. Rabbi Yosef Shol was no chassid. But he's makman to eat something and say a bracha wherever he goes. Ramatullah 
had a uh, had hours that he would receive people. <coughs> and Ayid showed up in the waiting room who had no semblance of appearing as a Jew. He insisted that going in to Sir Matal. The Gaboy were very curious what this guy wanted. He goes into Ramatul, he says that he was just on a business trip. And he came into a town where there was the, the entire town was in an upheaval about the fact <clears throat> that a person had washed up on the shores of the Dnieper River without any simonym as to who he was, so they buried him in the local c- cemetery. Weeks later, he was identified by a family way upstream as being a Jewish man, and they wanted to take the body out and bury it in a Jewish cemetery. And the non-Jews found it as a terrible insult. And the city was going through incredible turmoil. He says to Ramon the Rabbi, I'm a Jew. I don't have any relationship to Judaism, but I want to know that I'm going to be buried. No matter what happens to me, I want to know that I'm going to be buried in a Jewish cemetery. Rabbi, help me secure some method to know that no matter what happens, they'll know I'm a Jew. So I'm not, listen, I have a very simple solution for you. Under your clothing, where nobody sees anything, put on a baggage with tzitzis and make sure that it's, you wear a belt over it so that it's tight, it's not going to fall off if you end up in the water. And anybody who finds you washed up with that will know you're a Jew. The guy was delighted. No obligations upon his life. Puts on this Arab canvas. Anybody know how to say it in Yiddish? Know how to say uh, Arab canvas in Yiddish? No. That's modern. What do you call it in Yiddish? Huh? No. Oh. A labtzedekel. Called a labtzedekel. A guy asked me one day when I was a child where my labtzedekel is, and I told him I didn't think I had one. (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow, several weeks later, this fellow's back again. Shows up in Medish for Shachris. And he's curious as to what was happening here. So Chassidim went over and showed him, showed him the ropes. Several weeks later, he's back again. And in very short order, he began to put on film and became committed to Torah Mitzvahs. And Ramatullah derived from the story that here you have a person who's doing a mitzvah for a completely ulterior motive. And nonetheless, the concept of mitzvah gererus mitzvah created a reality in his life where, you know, it's the, the slippery slope. And he ended up being a shemitah mitzvah because of that one piece of advice. Who knows if Ramatul even intended that when he, when he gave him that original advice. The next story is a, one of these wild ones. And it's a, it's a personal story because... Let me confuse you a little bit. And they tell the story of 
Tversky when it comes to immigration on Ellis Island. The agent says to Rabbi Tversky and his wife, what's your name? He says, Tversky. turns to his wife and says, in your name? She says, Tversky. She says, the agent says to her, and you're to the wife and your maiden name, she says Tversky. Says, okay, what's your mother's maiden name? She says Tversky. <laughs> and the agent gets very, very frustrated and says, clearly you don't understand my questions. And she says, clearly you don't understand Tversky. <laughs> my son-in-law, his name is Horowitz. His um, mother's mother is a halberstam. The Divrichayim had, I believe, eight children, maybe nine children. <coughs> and among my children, they are descendants of all of them. The intermarriage was so extensive, continues to be. Um, my father made a cheshbon one that he, once that he was his own first cousin once removed like six times. <laughs> Anyhow, his, so my son-in-law's great-grandfather was the Baradivaru, who was a Halberstam, who ended up, Baruch Hashem, being saved because the Russians sent him off to Siberia, along with many other um, family members. There was a whole kibbutz of a Rebelisha girl that died in, in Siberia. He's buried there. But there was a, and many of them were saved with, with what they thought was the worst thing in the world that was happening to them, that they were being sent to Siberia, and, and many of those people survived because of it. So the Baradivirov survived, came to the United States. And uh, there's a figure you've probably heard of because of his efforts to save Jews during the war. His name is Michal Ber Weissmandel. Of, um, he wrote a book in English it was translated called The Unheeded Cry. Brilliant, brilliant man. When he came, he lost his his wife and children in, in the war, and he rebuilt the community in Mount Kisco in upstate New York. And he wanted to attract people to come live there, and he figured that one of the ways that he'd do that most effectively is that if he brought Rebus to come there during the summer and people would come up to be with the Rebus, that they'd be attractive and they'd want to move to Mount Kisco. I'm not sure if his if that plan ever materialized, but he certainly did it for several summers. And this Halberstam, his Paradivirov, was one of the people who he paid to come up and gave them a, a, an apartment to live in in Mount Kisco. So Shulam's grandfather uh, wrote up his his memories and he related that his father-in-law, this Bradivarov, was up there in Mount Kisco in, in, in an apartment building, had no money for food for Shabbos. Zero. He had no idea what they were going to do. His rabbits in there, a young child. There was no money for food. <coughs> And there's a knock at the door. Rosen opens the door, and there's a man standing there, bareheaded, and says to him in a very heavy, marmorish Yiddish, Rabbi Halberstam? He says, yeah. He says, this is for you. 
hands him an envelope filled with cash. And Rabbi Habashtab looks at him and says to him, do I know you? He says, no. He says, so why are you giving me this much money? He says, can I come in? <laughs> so he invites him in, sits down at the table, and tells him this incredible story. He himself, this Mamre Shahid, was a, a, an immigrant, came before the war to the United States. He says that his father had a, lived in Marmarosh. Where is, where is Marmarosh? It's, it's, uh, it's Hungary. It's, it's in Hungary, right? Hungary, Ukraine. Vizhnitz. Vizhnitz was in Marmarosh. His father had Neshav Kashim Gedacht, a horrific skin condition. He couldn't, everything, anybody touched him, anything touched him. It created incredible pain. He could not wear clothing. He went from doctor to doctor to, to get help. And despite the fact he was a wealthy man, paid top dollar, no, none of the, nobody in the medical world could assist him with his skin condition. He was going out of his mind. Finally, Ayid in, in Mamarosh says to him, you know that in Galicia, there's a tzaddik, it's called the Sanzer of the Divrechaim. And he didn't say about him that people who come to him, that he's able to pilot all kinds of miraculous Yeshuas. Go to the Divrechaim, you've tried everything else. What do you have to lose? For him, traveling was, was so extraordinarily difficult to sit on something, and the whole thing, and he had to wear clothing when he traveled. It was, it was torture. But you know, this was his only hope. He travels to Sanz and gets to Sanz and Divrachem was an old man. Now, as with many Rebbes, the Gaboyim are operators. They saw a wealthy man come. So the first Gabay said, you got to pay over here. And then he sent them to another Gabay who took money at the next station. He says, by the time he was finished, he had seen four different Gaboyim and paid them all to be able to get in to see the Debrechayim, and they finally let him in. And he comes in, he begins to weep about this, his plight. And the Debrechayim gives him a bracha for Rufu Shalema. <laughs> he walks out, and the Gabbai says to him, No, what did the Rebbe say? He said, The Rebbe gave me a bracha. He said, A bracha? You don't need a bracha, you need a promise, you need a commitment. You gotta go back in. So he goes to Gabbai number one, who sends him to Gabbai number two. He goes through the whole process, and by that time, he couldn't go in that day. He had to wait a night. Next day, he goes into the Rechaim, and the Rechaim looks up and says, you, you were here already. He said, I was told that I need a commitment, not a, not a bracha. Chaim says to him, You want a promise? I will yet come to you with a cure. And threw him out. 
They had no idea what to do with that. What does that mean? Went out to the Gabba, and the Gabba had no clue what it meant. He wanted, for their sake, to send them in again. But it was by now too expensive. And as he went back home, without having any understanding of what the Dibrechaim meant, it was the Dibrechaim wasn't traveling anymore. He was, in, he was in his 80s at the point. And he had no idea what that meant. I will yet come to you with a reform. The son says to the Baal Divirov, my father is sitting in his backyard one day in his underwear, in the sunlight. <coughs> and the Divirchaim appears in the yard with a bottle, some kind of lotion, and tells him that he, that he can. He recognized the Divirchaim. And he began to smear his body with this lotion. And everywhere he put it, his disease disappeared. And he finished smearing this, this lotion over his entire body and disappeared from whence he came. This guy goes running into the house screaming, I'm cured, I'm cured. And his wife says to him, what happened? Says Hitaka said he's going to come to me with a refuah, and he came to me with a refuah, and he was a simple, very simple man. And he said to his wife, "I'm going to sons. I have to pay the rebbe for for what he did." And he gets ready and then prepares for this trip. And the next morning, by Shachris, he tells the chaver, "I'm going to sons," and somebody says to him, "Why are you going to sons?" said, because I have to pay the Rebbe for what he did. And they said to him, the Divrachayim has been gone for two years. It's not on this world anymore. So this fellow says to the Badiviruv, he says, my father's not in the world anymore. He came to me last night in a dream and said to me, it's time to repay the debt to the tzaddik for what he did for me. His grandson is in Mount Kisco in an apartment building without food for Shabbos. Go take care of him. So, my father came to me in a dream and told me to come here and I came to do what my father told me to do. I'm repaying the debt to the Divrechaim. This Badi Baruch told his son-in-law, he said there were three Halberstams in that apartment building. They came to my door. Lived for half a year. And that money that his father in the Olama Emes sent him to repay a debt to the Divrechaim. I have no idea what to make of that story. It's it's just beyond, so beyond our experience. But it's a story that takes place in the United States of America. I'm not telling a story from, you know, from Europe hundreds of years ago. And 
As I mentioned last night at, at the Tish, the Gam Yaminu Lo'edam, Surah Magdashim tells us that the fact that Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu that they'll believe in you forever means that there will always be people in whom Kalah Yisrael can trust. People who, due to their own self-sacrifice, self-sacrifice for others and self-sacrifice for the Tzivu Hashem, that Hashem grants them this capacity due to the fact that they've overcome their nature, that they have the power to rule over nature. has logic to it. So what's the Shabbos as we depart from Shabbos Kodesh and we have this Neshami Yaseira that Hashem granted and this Neshami Yaseira is departing there's a concept of being Malava the Malka of escorting the Queen. And part of that was through the telling of Sipurit Tzadikim that calls our attention to the fact that there is a component within each one of us that's higher, more exalted, um, has the capacity to reach far beyond the limitations of our own experiences. And when we acknowledge the reality of that Neshama Yaseira, and we hold on to just a little bit, take it with us into the weekdays. We can build on that. And as we discussed over Shabbos, define ourselves a little bit more as a Neshama rather than a goof. And that changes the entire equation of our person. Brings us a little bit closer to the tzaddikim that we speak about. May the Rebbe Shalom grant us the seichel and the kayach to be able to follow in their footsteps. Yeah.